Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jim, gang violence is, is ever-present, from the streets of Chicago and Los Angeles to criminal indictments issued just this month in Savannah, Georgia. There's also a case of white supremacists operating in Grand Prairie, Texas. So many forms of violence linked to gangs. Yeah, there's one estimate that 1.4 million people in this country are involved in some sort of gang. So certainly this isn't going away. Fighting gang violence. Jonathan Green. The gang that brings the most violence is the one that makes the most money, is the one that wins. Sex, money, murder had a reputation for killing anyone who stood in their way. And soon their reputation became so well known that they didn't have to murder anyone. People would just sort of step back and say, well, we don't want any part of that. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? So let's talk about sex, money, murder. Yes, so (laughs) some of our favorite topics. Actually, that was the name of a notorious gang that operated and, and to some degree still operates in New York City. But we're going to focus on its heyday about 20 years ago. In the late 80s, or early 90s, when the crack epidemic was, was linked to a spike in murders and killings. And anybody who lived in this city, including us, certainly felt the, the implications of this because serious crime was just so much bigger than it is now. It's, it, it's literally like night and day. Our guest is Jonathan Green. He's the author of the new book, Sex, Money, Murder, A Story of Crack, Blood, and Betrayal. Thank you for having me here. Your book paints a, a vivid and, and even devastating picture of one New York City borough, the Bronx, where the gang Sex, Money, Murder actually operated. Tell us about its leader, a guy called Pistol Pete. Pistol Pete was an extremely charismatic guy. Um, he was uh, a legend in the Bronx at that time. He was friends with celebrities, and he was sort of unusual amongst Bronx gangs at that time because he was willing to carry out a lot of the murders himself now normally in these gangs this is the type of work that gets delegated to um junior members in the gang at his height how old was he he was a young guy i mean uh i think early 20s i think when he was really at his peak and just the way that Singers celebrated the gunfighters of the 19th century and the outlaws he turned up in a lot of music a lot of songs yes he has um Nas has rapped about him and Pete really had his own two 
rappers from Soundview, Lord And Soundview, just for people who aren't from this area, is a neighborhood in the South Bronx that was really notorious for some projects that were riddled with crime. Yes, like that's where Pete came from. And it was an extremely tough neighborhood, you know, very tough place to grow up and um, even worse in the middle of the crack epidemic. Give us a sense of how sex money murder operated. Well, they they started out as a corner clique and then they became larger and they got more recruits. What what do you mean by a corner clique? Well, just sort of a few guys in the neighborhood who would control a corner to sling crack. Um, And then they got larger. In 1992, they called themselves Sex Money Murder. And at that time, they were the first crews in the Bronx to start going out of town, sort of upstate New York in Massachusetts, where there's weak law enforcement. They're not going to run into any uh, problems with other gangs there. So it's a great place to start selling crack because you have no opposition. How profitable was crack? Oh, massively profitable. I mean, huge amounts of money. So it's not worth as much in the Bronx. But the more you go up to places like Springfield, Kingston, New York, Buffalo, where sex, money, murder are all active, then the price of the drugs can be worth two, three times as much. Talk about the crack epidemic, because it really was rampant. Yeah, I mean, it was um, very different to heroin, where it's a long, slow high. Um, Somebody described it as like being in a high-speed elevator, and you hit the top... And then you come down really fast. And the next time you take another hit, you need more to get up to that same floor like where you were at first. And you don't want the feeling to ever ebb or fade. And because it was broken down into small bags of, you know, five or ten dollars as opposed to, you know, a hundred dollars or something like that for a gram of powder cocaine that more upscale people were taking. It was something that people could manage on the street. They could get that $5 bag, but of course, then they'd want to be back two hours later for another one. Yes, and I think crack also brought a sort of democratization of the drug trade. Heroin's very expensive. A kilo of heroin back then could be like 180000 a sort of kilo of um, cocaine at that time was like 18000 So any street crew but with enough guys could actually have enough cash could buy one, and then you're in the drug game. Now, the way you got involved in this story was quite a few years later. How did your connection with these particular gangsters begin? Well, I had a friend um, who's a federal investigator, and he sort of called me out one day, and he said, look, I got these two guys who are in this crew. It's not bullshit stuff. If you want to come down and meet them do so and this I, was suge and pipe well it was just suge at first um so i met suge in the u.s attorney's office and this is a really tough street guy and he talks a million miles a minute so it's like a machine gun and he did it and there's a lot of slang and at first we really didn't understand each other you know he was completely thrown off i had an english accent and i didn't understand a lot of the lingo you know uh Gas is a gun, uh, burner is a gun. Uh, They had phrases like rock him to sleep, which means to murder a guy. So this story tumbled out. And, um, you know, I 
did my best at understanding it, but I... And this was years after the events in question, yes. right? This was something like 2012? Yeah, but Sex Money Murder is still very active. It's How not- did Sex Money Murder corner the drug trade in, in, in its neighborhood? Well, um, Suge told me, here's how it works. The gang that brings the most violence is the one that wins. The gang that brings the most violence is the one that makes the most money. So you, you might have a corner in the Bronx, but you need to take over another block. The only way to take over another block is with violence. So what would happen is sex, money, murder had a reputation for killing anyone who stood in their way. And soon their reputation became so well known that they didn't have to murder anyone. People would just sort of step back and say, well, we don't want any part of that. There are two New York City uh, detectives who be- are, are police officers who became a big part of this story. Tell us about them. Um, John O'Malley actually grew up in Soundview, and then he joined Bronx Homicide right at the height of the crack epidemic. And they would have so many murders that it, it would be impossible to be able to solve every one because at that time the violence was so intense that there was no way to get people in the neighborhoods to actually speak out about it because they would put their lives in risk. And then there was also a housing cop who was involved in your book. Yeah, Pete Forcelli. He um, worked as a housing cop, so he got to know all the guys in the neighborhood and he knew all the leaders of the gang. I think people who live outside New York may not know what a housing cop is. This is a cop who is assigned to duty in a public housing project or a series of projects. Exactly. So you've got thousands of people living there who can't say anything about the gang because of the risk of retaliation. So how did the police go about cracking this gang? It's really difficult. And uh, in the early 1990s, they really struggled because what would happen is because they would arrest guys, it was very hard to make a case because there would be no witnesses, no one's actually willing to say anything. And the guys who were caught got pretty low sentences and they would go into jail and they would immediately join a gang inside and then come out again and still be part of the gang. So this whole process, this revolving door of state prisons actually grows gangs. I want to know a little bit more about about how the cops crack this gang how they how they took them down how they how they started to deal with this this problem well it was around sort of uh 1995 and they realized that the murder rate in new york was so high but everyone was focused on the mafia no one was actually focusing on these street crews so the um feds and a pioneering prosecutor called liz glazer decided to apply RICO laws, which are racketeering laws, which are only used against the mafia. So what happens then is all the guys in the gang get charged with racketeering. So and- RICO is was a law originally set up, to, as you said, to go after the mafia. And it's not, you don't necessarily have to catch them committing the crime as long as you catch them organizing themselves so, in so order to commit crime. So it's the conspiracy, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So anyone in the crew... At that time, it doesn't really matter if you've, you know, actually murdered a guy yourself. But if you're part of the crew and you're involved in murders, then you can be caught up in this whole thing. Now, when you go in the feds, it's very different uh, state time because you face like 
40 years or so. Um, there's no parole. And you also get sent to prison out of state. You know, you can end up in Arizona. Um, in New York, people would go into Rikers at first and then prisons upstate. And many of these guys got really used to this. You know, and they, when they go to prison, there would be people there they knew yeah, and make like connections. Yeah, they knew everyone in there. So they'd be in there for like four years and then out again. Well, that doesn't happen in the feds. But the other thing in the feds, which is crucial to understanding this, is it works on cooperation. So there are certain guys in the crew who will be approached and said, look, you know, we're going to offer you the chance of telling us everything about what the crew has done, what you've done. So none of these guys can only give part of the loaf. They have to tell their whole criminal history. To federal investigators. Yes. Pretty soon, guys start to talk. So then you've shattered this conspiracy of silence, which was happening in the projects where everyone's too scared to talk. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Jonathan Green, author of the brand new book, Sex, Money, Murder, A Story of Crack, Blood, and Betrayal. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big pause. Why does your story need to be told well this is a problem which may have happened in the bronx in the 1990s but it's going on all over america right now like you only have to look at chicago baltimore detroit in the past few years the murder rate in chicago has gone up a lot why chicago what's going on i mean it's the same thing it's a inner city um not many opportunities Young guys are, you know, looking for um, brothers and people to be on their side and they're looking for ways of making money and drugs is that. But the other thing is the sort of brotherhood of a gang. So it's, it's very enticing. And the status that comes with that. And Yeah, absolutely. So we see killings increasing in Chicago and a rampant gang problem. As someone who's lived in and around New York throughout this whole period... It's so much better now. I mean, you can walk around in neighborhoods in the South Bronx that you wouldn't have set foot in in the 90s. And they're nice. They're pretty nice. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So what did New York get right? Well, there's a number of things. Um, I think Bill Bratton, who was the police commissioner at the time, I mean, he flooded the streets with police. I think people got less interested in smoking crack. There was like a natural decline in the uh, 
appeal of the drug. Um, you know, it became very unfashionable for young kids to be seen as a crackhead. So. Right, there was a cultural change, wasn't yeah. there? So there, there were the, where the crackheads were really, really looked down on. Yeah. I mean, also, a lot of the work at the Fed sort of really helped. I mean, they took out some really violent gangs and they started to weed out these ringleaders. So law enforcement can work. It's not always a revolving door into prison and right back to the streets. No, it's very tough. I mean, I think in jail, I mean, I think you really have to start solving the problem in the street first because these young guys go into jail and, and, you know, really for many of them, the only way to survive is to join a gang. So it swells the gang membership and then they come so back on the street and they're and they're fully invested now in the bloods so i i really don't know how you solve the problem in the jails i mean it's it's very hard because even to when they go into jail now because they ask about their uh, gang affiliation and that's where your house so you're with all the other guys in the gang so the system as it is now feeds it uh, tell us a little bit about what happened with these guys. There's a very poignant section in your book where you catch up with, with Suge and Pipe. You yeah. know, after these years of crime and prison and everything else, uh, how did these guys turn out? Where are they now? Well, it was amazing. Um, so both guys um, ended up cooperating in the feds. So they actually worked with investigators and they helped solve murders, but they had to sort of give everything up. Now, if you do that, uh, the prosecutor in the case will write what's known as a 5K letter, which is a downward departure from the mandatory minimums in the feds. You mean it allows the judge not to impose the mandatory minimum sentence, which is usually enormous. A very long time. So, So in their case, they both got time served. So Pipe, who was actually a leader of the gang, he was OG, um, served, I think. What's OG? Original gangster. Okay. Yeah. So, so sorry. Don't listen to much hip hop, do you? <laughs> no, no, sorry. As soon as you answered that, I went, oh, yeah, yeah, come on. Okay. So, um, like they both um, served, you know, uh, you know, relatively short sentences. And, and Pipe came out determined not to get involved again. He He saw the sort of folly of his ways and he you know was doing fantastically well you know did and it's very tough as a felon to get employed because you had this on your record so and it's very hard particularly for a guy like that because he's used to being in the nightclub with you know lots of money and gold chains and buying champagne and everything else so he comes out he has to work menial jobs so it's a completely different mindset to someone who's had all this power i mean really a life and death power over other people isn't he targeted also by other members of that gang well like that's the problem yeah that is you know like when you snitch um that is so one of the by products of that so both the guys have to be very so careful um you know they can't go back to their neighborhood but that's another positive of the federal system that in the state they come out of jail go straight back in the neighborhood and it starts all over again if you cooperate in the feds which many people do you have to move 
so Pipe went on and was trained to become an iron worker, right? Yes, yeah. Like he went to night school and, you know, he works in the day and he studied at night and, you know, he saved up to um, buy a house. He sent his daughter to a private school. I mean, he was really thriving. Um, Pipe's had a few issues of late, which hopefully uh, will resolve themselves. But by and large, I mean, he was doing really well. And, And many of the guys in... Sex, Money, Murder, who cooperated and grabbed this chance of a new life and left. And many of them have done really well. You know, they've never been rearrested. And they're very bright guys. Right, right. Some, some of these guys are real in a different world. They'd be entrepreneurs or oh, leaders. Oh, God, like they'd be millionaires. I mean, if they were born anywhere else, I mean, they're so clever. They're so good with money. They understand business. Um, and like they would thrive. So many of them came out and they do work small businesses and other things never been rearrested because the federal system is so scary that it's a cold shock you know your book is mostly about the gang members about the cops who went after them can community leaders families even churches make a difference in this struggle against gangs yes there's an absolutely terrific program that started in Boston called Operation Ceasefire. And the organizer of this realized that everyone in the community knows who the leaders of the gangs are. I mean, everybody knows. So what they do, they organize a big meeting with the police and members of the community and the gang leaders. And they say, look, look, we're all here. We know what's happening. We know who you are, what you're doing, and we're offering you a chance to stop. But if you don't, then we're going to come down really hard on you. But we're, you know, in a friendly environment here now. Like we know it's you. And it's worked. I mean, it's had, wow. it's really had some success. But I, I, I seriously doubt whether it would work against a crew like Sex, Money, Murder in Soundview. They were far too big, far too powerful. And, and so know, much money was moving through. So much money. I mean, they, you know, they really became an organized crime syndicate. I mean, they started out as kids on a street corner, but because of the crack epidemic, they were able to grow in power completely unchecked for years and years. I mean, now most of the crews, I think, now are like arrested in two years. I so, mean, so the police, the policing has gotten that much better. Yeah, so much better. I mean, particularly with uh, social media, mm-hmm. the police now are monitoring this all the time. So data, better data. I mean, this actually goes, you mentioned Bratton, the New York was a pioneer in using more data to anticipate where crime was most likely. And you, you said they flooded the streets. Some of those programs were controversial, but from your account, it really worked pretty well. Yeah. I mean, the big sort of game changer in the 90s was CompStat. And and it was sort of started with a spe- specific sort of mandate to track where all the murders were in the city. And that's how they were able to target neighborhoods like Soundview. Deviancy amplification. What yeah. is that? Well, it's a great phrase, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I first heard it when I was talking to a criminologist and it's basically how when you have this revolving door of the state system when young guys in gangs go inside and they serve you know maybe four or five years on a minor charge they'll go into jail and they may at that point just be part of a kind of corner crew something not that serious 
But you go inside and it's either like the Bloods or the Latin Kings. So they have to join a particular side to survive in jail, which then has a massive impact because when these guys are released, they're like full-bone Bloods with like ranking and hierarchy and they're more powerful than they ever were when they went in. So today, you know, in the 90s, it was crack. Today, we have this widespread issue with heroin and opiates in general spread much more broadly and even in rural America. But are there some lessons from how the crack trade receded? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be in the same way that crack really sort of signed, signed its own death warrant when it became um, culturally unacceptable for young people to smoke crack. If we could win the war against heroin, I think a huge part of it would be to make it, you know, socially unacceptable for people to start with uh, oxycodone and these other drugs and to then get into heroin. But on the organized crime front, I mean, if there are specific crews moving large amounts of heroin and they're violent, then I think federal intervention is, you know, is really a sledgehammer to take down these networks because they will crack once you arrest them all rico laws i mean they'll talk you know and and then you bring the whole thing down jonathan green author of sex money murder a story of crack blood and betrayal thanks for being with us my pleasure thank you very much So, Jonathan Green, Sex, Money, Murder, a title I could say over and over again. Jim, what's surprising to you about what he said? Well, so much of what he's saying kind of goes against the grain of conventional wisdom today. You know, we hear again and again that law enforcement doesn't work, that, you know, people just go to prison and come back out and it's a revolving door. But here's a story where law enforcement actually did work uh, to some extent and and even had a positive impact on some of the criminals, some, not all, who got caught up in the legal system and, um, you know, put on a better path. It certainly goes against the grain to think that things could be getting better. And in this city where we live in New York, things in terms of violent crime are a lot better. And I think you always you always hear this from me on how do we fix it. People respond to incentives, and there were a number of incentives that helped end the crack epidemic. I love the way Jonathan talked about how the culture changed, and crackheads became figures of great disgust and disdain. That had an impact. I also think, when did the crack epidemic really start to wane? It was in the late 90s when the economy in the New York area was booming. What about the role of pop culture? Where, where gangsters are constantly celebrated. I, yes. I find that a little troubling. Yes, I do too. But you remember all the songs and movies. I mean, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And, you know, there's been a, a lot of celebration of gangsters of various sorts. There was this famous anthropologist named Clifford Geertz. And he wrote an essay, one of the most influential essays in anthropology called Notes on a Balinese cockfight. He was observing these cockfights that were happening in native communities in Bali, and he, de- he described it as what he called a model of 
and a Model 4 culture. In other words, the cockfight kind of recapitulated various status relationships uh, within the society, but also became a model for the society. When people wanted to say, well, here's how things are organized, they would explicitly reference the cockfight, just the way people in business might explicitly reference, well, like, we're on the 10th yard line. They would use football as a metaphor to explain what they're doing. So this makes me think that you can't underestimate the importance of culture when these figures are being celebrated in hip-hop, when hip-hop or other forms of entertainment are sort of setting the boundaries of what constitutes status. They're defining status. The other thing that Jonathan Green's book does is it tells a fascinating story about people who, if they had not been raised in housing projects in the Bronx, could have been extremely successful Yeah, these guys are are really smart, smart, charismatic, organized. It's, it's in that way, kind of a heartbreaking story. People in these really dire situations seizing this culture and, um, and you know, causing a lot of death and, and mayhem. But, but also, when you read the book, it's also really understandable and you empathize with them. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Mays. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of Davies Content. Check us out at our website, DaviesContent.com. And if you like listening to this podcast, you may want to take a listen to One Day University, which is a new podcast series that we've launched with the education firm One Day University. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 